Deep pattern, downfield, touchdown Miami! What a throw, Devontae Parker! Holy smokes, what a drive! What is up, Dolphins, and welcome back to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, we are kicking off the training camp preview series. That's right, football is right around the corner. We're going to take an in-depth look under center at the quarterback position, stats, facts, film, and much more on Tua Tungavailoa, Jacoby Brissett, and Reed Sinnett. Plus, we'll continue our 2021 NFL season preview, taking a look at the very intriguing AFC South. Busy, busy episode. All of that and more on this edition of the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. So what's going on, everybody? We are back after being gone for a couple of weeks and back on the daily schedule with you all here. And this was my first really extended break in podcasting since I began all of this back in 2016 with the Finalysis podcast and my co-host Kevin Dern. Well, that's not quite true because we were a twice a week podcast there with me and Kevin. But before Locked On Dolphins became my daily gig in 2017, and I don't think I ever missed a day with Locked On Dolphins. I even remember asking the boss man, Mr. David Locke himself, about pushing a show one week, and he asked me why, and I said, well, because it's Thanksgiving, and we have plans today, and he had totally forgotten about the holiday, and we had a great laugh about that because we were both so entrenched with the work and building up Locked On Sports, and again, it's so cool to see what they've continued to build over there with Locked On Sports, but this time of the calendar, the middle of the summer, it's kind of like summer vacation for kids, right, in school, we have the perfect time to kind of disconnect and kind of recenter your chi, as it were, and come back rejuvenated. And guess what? It worked. I do feel recharged. You know, one thing we got to do was we got to go camping with my wife's family, something we do every 4th of July weekend. They go up to the mountains. It's a nice break from the eastern Washington heat as you get up into the mountains and around 70 or 80 degrees or so. And let's just go ahead and set the scene at camping here because normally when I would go camping, and it's not my favorite thing to do, actually, I really don't like it at all, but we go up and just hang out and enjoy one day in the outdoors. We don't sleep outdoors. We go back home. That's, that's how I prefer it. But when I would go camping as a child, it was, you know, you get the RV, you get the van, you go to a cabin, something like that where you have your domestic level of, of bliss, but you also can enjoy the outdoors that way. But that's not how this camping is because they love the outdoors. They go horseback riding. They get the four-wheelers out there. They're setting up traps, capturing animals, cooking them, and keeping the skins. And one of the things that was hilarious to me, you've all have seen Happy Gilmore, right? When uh, Happy first goes to the T-Block at his first tournament and the golf pro says, look where he's standing. Well, I'm sitting there Minding my own business, I've got a Coors Light open up, enjoying the the sunshine and the nice weather, and all of a sudden, the skin of this chipmunk that they had caught and cooked comes flying at me, and it lands on my lap, and I grab it by the ear, pinch the very ear of it so I'm not touching any of it, and I throw it back to my wife's stepfather, who, again, this guy is the outdoor manliest man you can ever think of, and as I do that to him, he says to everybody else, look at where he grabbed it. He grabbed it by the ear, just like the guy in Happy Gilmore. So that was a fun moment. We're going to get into the positional previews, the training camp previews up on MiamiDolphins.com right now. The schedule is 
as follows for now. We could move some things around depending on when those deadlines hit, but quarterbacks on Tuesday, July 13th, Wednesday, running backs on Thursday, tight ends, Friday, receivers will come back next Monday on the 19th with the offensive line on Tuesday, July 20th, interior defensive line. Wednesday, we'll do edge slash on ball linebackers, your Jalen Phillips types. Thursday, we'll do off ball linebackers, Friday, the 23rd, cornerbacks, Monday, the 26th, safeties, Tuesday, the 27th, specialists, and then Wednesday, the 28th, we have practice, Miami Dolphins practice. The first edition of the new 2021 Miami Dolphins post-OTAs, which I don't really count as the actual season itself. So at the position, in is Jacoby Brissett, formerly of the Colts and the Patriots. Out is Ryan Fitzpatrick. He is now in Washington. Best of luck to Fitz out there in the nation's capital. Reed Sinet and Tua Tungabailoa, the incumbents, and Charlie Fry is the new quarterback's coach. Charlie Fry enters his first season as QB's coach here in Miami. After a five-year playing career, Fry entered the coaching ranks at the high school level before climbing into his most recent role as OC with the Central Michigan Chippewas. He worked with quarterbacks, receivers. He also served as a director of player personnel with the Florida Gators between 2016 and 2017. So he kind of fits that mold we've talked about here on the podcast where a lot of these coaches under Brian Flores's umbrella under his staff as he was himself have worked multiple different positions on personnel with coaching both sides of the football special teams you get the best a la carte type of coaching staff when you bring in guys like that so talking about what's most important at this position this year it's the year two jump right that's what we all look for that's what we all talk about and the last time we really anticipated a possible year two jump was that 2013 season the year after Ryan Tannehill's rookie year where he did receive a nice little bump in his statistics and his play and that was an awfully pedestrian offense in 2012 that just did not have the firepower and then in 2013 they kind of revamped the offense to try to get him more weapons but back to the modern day this is what Brian Flores had to say about Tua's offseason and what this time this spring and summer has meant for the 23-year-old quarterback from the Joe Rose Show on 560 WQAM back in May. Tua is more comfortable with just his surroundings, more comfortable being in the huddle, giving a cadence, going through his communication, those little things that no one really talks about. He said this, he feels much more comfortable about doing those things. I think having a year under his belt will really help him. And there's this is outside of the quote now. There's this perception that the rookie season wasn't good or went off the rails a little bit. And Tua himself said that it wasn't up to his standard. And I can believe that because his standard has never been the norm really in his entire football life. I mean, the number one dual threat quarterback in the nation as a prep, a record-breaking offense and quarterback in college football there at Alabama, national champion, his first season on campus where he comes off the bench and rescues the game after trailing by 13 at half throwing these perfectly placed long balls, timing and quick rhythm hitters to create yards after the catch and those opportunities for the most loaded receivers core in college football. I mean, it takes a special quarterback to keep four first round receivers fed and happy, right? Like you, you would think that's the case. And you've heard me discuss all of this podcast this offseason. And for that matter, all of the pre-draft in 2020 and post-draft into Tunga Vailoa's rookie season, his control of the football to spin it and place it despite his platform, whether his feet are set, whether he's not set, whether it's in the middle of his drop that he has to interrupt coming off the top of the drop, driving up into the pocket, fleeing to the left or to the right, the way he can kind of move those hips and clear those hips and fire the football. And 
That's the physical set of it, the knowledge with the mental side of it to displace defenders, not just with his eyes, but body position, influencing players based upon his hips and his feet and the, the direction of his shoulders, where he's square to, and to attack based upon the structure of the defense, knowing the route concept he has on offense and what the defense might be keying on on that particular concept. I mean, we saw it in OTAs this year. I tweeted about it. The deep shot to Jakeem Grant that we had a great video of from our fantastic video team. The middle of the field safety starts to cheat that way a little bit. And the cameras show an up-close shot of Tua on that throw to Jakeem where he starts Jakeem to the right, flips his hips back to the post. And you can watch this on Twitter. It's all right there for you. Flips his hips back to the post and then right back over to the right side of the formation to square up to his target and float a perfectly placed ball that intersects with Jakeem in full stride just out of reach of the underneath corner and the displaced safety over the top. These are the details, the fine ones that really separate quarterbacks for my money. Nick Saban, of course, the great head coach of Alabama, talked about it on his ESPN detail show showing where Tua was getting to his third or fourth read on some throws and down the field vertical throws on a full field read and saying that he's never coached a kid in college who can do that stuff. He's also very light on his feet, the ability to spring from one step into another, which changes the angle and sees rushers fly by. More on that here in just one second. Uh, Chris Kaufman, CK Parrot on Twitter, had a great tweet earlier where he showed a video of Tua getting to his drop and pressure arriving and getting the football out as he interrupted that drop. You watch his feet on that clip, and it doesn't really make sense how he's able to almost mid-stride pick his foot back up and replace it so that he can get to a different platform and change the angle for the pass rusher. It's a real special ability I noticed early on in Tua's career that I think is very, very overlooked as far as the footwork goes. So quick release, quick twitch, pocket mobility, enough speed to present a threat as a runner on design runs, keeper, zone reads, that sort of thing. Some of the most decorated ball placement we've ever seen in college football, the ability to get off his spot and the light feet to elude rushers. And even in a year where it wasn't up to his own standards, those traits were still on display in nine starts as a rookie, six and three as a starter. Like this chart from Hayden Winks at Underdog Fantasy Sport. He does some great work. You can follow him at Hayden Winks on Twitter. This on-target clean pocket chart that he posted got a lot of feedback, pushback, and just overall generalized discussion based upon that chart. And basically what this chart was doing was looking at the depth of target as well as the on-target uh, throw percentage, which is defined by, I think it was Next Gen or Pro Football Focus. You'll have to forgive me there for not knowing exactly the site that he was referencing her, but it references throws that are in stride that the receiver doesn't have to break stride or off the body, off the frame type of throw. So it measures every quarterback in the NFL and their accuracy on clean pocket throws. So no pressure. The depth of the target was right around 8.5 yards down the field and the on-target rate was just a smidge below 85%. There's no hash marks here, but it looks to me like 83% on the chart. Only 10 quarterbacks were higher on the accuracy chart. And one of those 10, only one, Dak Prescott of the Cowboys, had a higher depth of target on clean pocket throws in terms of quarterbacks that completed 83% or better of their throws. And the company immediately around Tua on that chart Ryan Tannehill, who's been the highest-rated passer in the NFL the last two years. Matt Stafford, who we all know and love as far as what he can do with the football. And the Rams have huge expectations with him this year. Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson, and Joe Burrow. Not bad at all. And I keep posting these things because, to me, 
All stats have a place in football. It's an unquantifiable game. So we use an infinite amount of data to try our best to, well, quantify it. And a common reply that I saw that this was a pointless chart, a pointless stat, and I could not disagree more. I've mentioned my quarterback charting website on here a million times now. And a good example of that would be 2016 for Carson Wentz. Let's actually go ahead and come back to that real quick because, I mean, what do you want from stuff like this? It's a measurement for accuracy when the play structure is sound and the surrounding cast executes their job. Why does it have to be a BS stat because the guy that you think is best didn't finish atop of it? Few things irk me more than when you see a list of quarterbacks or players in this league that doesn't go down the you know, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, like just because those guys are not at the top of the list does not mean it's not a valid list. And when you watch the tape, you can predict who is structurally sound in this area and who will rank atop in this area because I will never, ever, ever, ever forget, again, that 2016 3rd and 10.com study I did where I created my own evaluation for quarterback passing. It was Carson Wentz's rookie season. And I was so impressed by his ability to make plays when things broke down around him. But the reason his grade was not very good and he finished 23rd in the charting that year and the Eagles went 6-10 and 10 was because there was way too many layups that missed and hamstrung the offense, put them into second down and 10 opposed to second and four and kept that offense off schedule, kept them low in scoring. And of course, they finished 6-10 and 10 that season. Now, the following year in 2017, he would continue to do the magic stuff as far as making guys miss and, and create plays, but he also corrected the rookie season misses on those layups, those end structure throws. The Eagles go 13-3. and three. Of course, he gets injured that year. Would have been MVP if he did not, most likely. And they go on to win the Super Bowl, again, with Nick Foles. But you get the idea. Once he fixed the structural stuff, the stuff that makes up I don't know, 75, 80% of the position, the Eagles offense took that next step and his highlight level plays became even more highlight level because they were in position to make more of them because the offense was on the field and executing at a higher rate. Does that all make sense? I hope it does. I tweeted this the other day in regards to Greg Cassell's comment about playing and structure and how playing in structure and in rhythm is about, he said, 85% of playing the position and the highlight reel stuff isn't enough to make you a consistent good starter. And that's kind of what I think gets lost in the shuffle here. The highlight reels, the good and bad, that stuff really sticks out in people's minds, but it's the tight window shots against a zone look that creates this triangle of underneath, over the top and robber coverage that requires an anticipatory throw and perfect location away from a defender and the leverage of that defender, for instance, like a third and 12 conversion from Tua to Gesicki in the Kansas City game last year that Tony Romo raved over in real time. And then later in his breakdowns on NFL Live, Dan Orlovsky went in on that and showed you how special that throw was. So Tua ranks in the top 10 in clean pocket on target throws. But even just the misconception of it all isn't enough because he was also second in eluding pressure rate per pro football focus. So what are we talking about here? How about the company that he keeps in regards to evading pressure? Number one in the NFL last season, Josh Allen, 26.1% of the time evaded initial pressure. Tua, number two, at 24.2%. How about this company next? Lamar Jackson, 21%. Kyler Murray, 19.4%. Then Derek Carr, 19.1%. 
And Derek Carr has just been much better than I personally gave him credit for. Again, going back to thirdand10.com, early on in his career, he's been the real key consistent cog for that Raiders offense in the Gruden era, in my opinion. But back to our guy here. I want to take a look at a couple more splits here before I move on. The first six games for Tua as a starter per NFL media research, nine touchdowns, one interception, 95.1 passer rating. And yeah, the YPA wasn't great at 6.6, but it was respectable enough, especially for a rookie quarterback in his first few starts. Then in weeks 15 through 17, 5.7 YPA, two to four touchdown to interception ratio and a 72.8 passer rating. Well, what happened in week 15? You guys remember that? That was when the injuries became almost to the point of comical. At one point in the game after Jakeem, Devontae, and Mike Gesicki were all out injured, the Dolphins' top seven players, and mind you, they were without Miles Gaskin in that game as well. Preston Williams was also down in that game. They were without their top seven players in terms of yards from scrimmage. They had all been injured and were not available. So top seven guys are out. Who can possibly survive that? Well, Miami did, and they won that game. So it was an uphill climb for the offense, and Tua winds up with the second highest tight window throw percentage in the NFL last year. He threw into tight windows more than all quarterbacks but one. And what does he do in that stat? He finishes first in tight window throw completion rate with 47.5%. And significant credit here to the receivers because this group really excels at catching contested footballs. He was second in passer rating behind just Aaron Rodgers at 83.4 passer rating and ahead of Derek Carr, Tom Brady, and Drew Brees. And he was third in touchdown to interception ratio on these tight window throws, which are defined as one yard of separation. And mind you, this is GPS tracked. There's no gray area. It's black and white. So I look at that, the accuracy from the clean pocket, the accuracy when lanes are contested, and the ability to create when the pocket is compromised, and you look to create more easy throws in the future now with the addition of Jalen Waddle, Will Fuller, yards after the catch guys, and more on them here later this week. I just don't see what we're missing here. Let's get to the rest of the room. Jacoby Brissett is here now. Uh, he has replaced Ryan Fitzpatrick as kind of the old hat in the room. He wears number 14, five years experience, North Carolina State. He'll be 28 years old on opening day. And what I found most interesting about Brissett was twice in his career, he really rose to the challenge of a late promotion into the lineup. First, as a rookie, he comes off the bench, and you might remember this, in 2016 in that week two game against the Patriots. Garoppolo gets hurt. Brissett comes into the game. And then the following week, he starts again and leads the Patriots on a short week on Thursday night to a 27-0 win over the Houston Texans. Then, in 2019, Brissett was unexpectedly named the starter following the shocking retirement of Andrew Luck. And Brissett brings the Colts out of the box to a 5-2 start while posting a 99.3 passer rating in the process. So Jacoby Brissett, when things kind of are chaotic and he has to get in the game, grab the helmet, get yourself going, get yourself ready, he can jump in there and hold the fort. And the best part about Jacoby Brissett, he has a career interception rate of 1.3%. That's the best in the history of the National Football League, minimum 900 attempts. I think he does a great job getting the offense into the right looks, getting his box count, getting him into the right run or pass play, coming off the bench in a pinch, manage a game and execute a game plan and get the football to an open man. The other quarterback on the roster, Reed Sennett, number four, has one year of NFL experience. He went to San Diego, and he'll be 24 years old on opening day. He was a UDFA with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year before signing with Miami on the practice squad on September 14th. He has yet to take an NFL snap, but he did explode in his one season as the starter at San Diego when he threw for 3,528 yards, 
32 touchdowns, and he added 174 yards on the ground with six touchdowns, where he was also a finalist for the Walter Payton Award, which is awarded annually to the most outstanding offensive player in Division I football championship subdivision. So there's your quarterback preview tomorrow. Running backs coming up. Let's go ahead and finish out this podcast by continuing our NFL preview series and take a look at the AFC South. And this division is one of the more intriguing ones to me because, you know, it might not have the juggernaut team, and maybe they do. I'm not really sure yet. None of us are really sure. But I find the divisions that have three possibly good teams, three or four possibly good teams to be the most intriguing. And we start here with the team in a bit of transition with the Houston Texans and their coaching staff that went after David Coley and good for David Coley for getting the bag here towards the end of his career into his 60s. Uh, he also brought in Lovey Smith. And I'll be curious to see what Lovey Smith does with that defense because he's kind of been a by-the-books principal type of defensive coordinator for his entire career and head coach for his entire career. And we'll see if he can adapt uh, to this new role and to the modern league as, as far as coming back to the NFL after being at Illinois there with the Fighting Illini for so many years. Just one of the weirdest off-seasons I've ever seen in terms of signing so many veteran players for a team that has the one of the older rosters in the National Football League And given the state of the quarterback position right now for that team, expectations are, you know, it's hard to forecast where this team might be without that quarterback if he does not play. But what does happen there? Is it going to be Tyrod Taylor, Davis Mills? They drafted him there with their first draft pick. But 26 free agents signed, and most of those guys were signed to one-year deals. It's one of the craziest building processes I've ever seen in the National Football League. Getting guys like Philip Lindsay and Desmond King maybe hoping to maximize their play and their earning potential in 2022 when they go back on the market. But let's go ahead and just go over their offseason here real quick because that's the real story for this Texans football team. Tyrod Taylor, Davis Mills, Mark Ingram, Rex Burkhead, Philip Lindsay, like that's three name running backs who maybe in another year were more named, but those are still big names you put to the roster there. Chris Conley and Dante Moncrief joined Nico Collins, a draft pick at receiver. They signed Darren Fells and Farrell Brown. They drafted Brevin Jordan out of Miami, big fan of his game. They bring in Justin Britt and Lane Taylor. They get Jordan Jenkins and Demarcus Walker and Jaleel Johnson, Malik Collins, Vince Taylor along the defensive line. They bring in Neville Hewitt, Kevin Pierre-Lewis, and Christian Kirksey and Kamu Grugier-Hill. How many former Dolphins have you heard in this list? And the defensive backfield, Desmond King and Terrence Brooks. So the Houston Texans... We will see this team, the Dolphins will, in a 1 p.m. kickoff in week number nine, November 7th, here at Hard Rock Stadium. Another team we're going to see, actually all four of these teams we'll see, is the Jacksonville Jaguars, week six, up in, over in London, I should say, a 9.30 a.m. kickoff. That's way too early for us out here on the East Coast. Can't imagine being back on the West Coast again for a 6.30 kickoff. But this Jacksonville team, again, this is where the intrigue really starts for me in the division. Urban Meyer, how quickly does he acclimate? to the NFL. He's been very open in his press conferences about kind of the learning process for him and and trying to get to where he wants to go. What type of offense are they going to run? Because this is a guy that has had dominant college offenses everywhere he has gone, all the way back to Alex Smith at Utah, to Justin Fields most recently here with Ohio State, even though that was Ryan Day's program. Uh, Urban Meyer kind of helped usher in that era with the good quarterbacks they had there at Ohio State for so many years. And What are the dividends of Trevor Lawrence immediately? And I think pairing him with Travis Etienne was such a great option and a great idea. Travis Etienne's a hell of a player. Where does James Robinson factor into all this? To me, Travis Etienne's the most dangerous when you play him 
80% of the time. And now maybe that means a lot of two back sets, which works for this team because they are deeper at running back than receiver and especially at tight end. And I, I love DJ Shark. I love LaVisca Chenault. Marvin Jones is a good vet. But those three guys with ETN and Robinson, to me, that's your best five as far as skill players go. So are we going to be a 20 personnel based offense? That could be a possibly fun thing to watch on, to keep an eye on. On defense, how about Josh Allen, the defensive end? Not the other Josh Allen. This guy that was drafted highly by the Jacksonville Jaguars one year before getting Caleb on chase on. I think Josh Allen from Kentucky could finally have that big breakthrough year we've been waiting for for him. And they're slowly building some depth on that defensive line, but it's just not quite there yet. One of the reasons why, Taven Bryan, no fifth-year option extended for him, the former first-round pick out of Florida. On the offensive line, it's a good one. I th- you know, Brandon Linder has been there for seemingly... 75 years. He anchors it all. Cam Robinson's a good tackle. I think Juwan Taylor could be even better. And we'll see what happens at left guard. That big Andrew Norwell contract a few years back just did not pan out, but he is still there. I'll be curious to see what he looks like with a clean bill of health. At linebacker, I loved Miles Jack, his draft season, and I still love him. He and Joe Schobert are the quintessential modern-day linebackers. Schobert gets all kinds of picks and plays coverage. And Joe Cullen comes over to coordinate this defense from Baltimore. Be curious to see how these guys operate in a system that typically, and I don't know if he'll run that system, but where he comes from had run a system where it was linebacker heavy and you mug guys up and have your multiple gap players that can do different things. And where they aren't quite there yet with the depth on the defensive line, they have gone to work rounding out this defensive backfield. And that's a smart move, I think, in today's NFL, going after the defensive backfield. Shaquille Griffin, a big signing from Seattle. They get C.J. Henderson last year in the top 10 out of Florida. And then Tyson Campbell this year, who has already been announced as their slot cornerback from Urban Meyer, despite never playing there in college. Interesting tactic there, but they obviously saw something on tape that made them think that he could do that job, and he's a hell of a player. So be curious to keep an eye on that. One personal note here, can you guys free my boy Gardner Minshew from Washington State University? Go Cougs. I mean, you got Trevor Lawrence. He's probably going to be your starter. Probably is even a funny word there. They signed C.J. Beathard. And also, Jake Luton is there who played late in the season for them and had some success as well. So free Minshew, free the stash, free the jean shorts, baby. Trevor Lawrence, C.J. Beathard, Travis Etienne, Carlos Hyde, all additions in the backfield. They go out and get Marvin Jones, Josh Emoterbebe, Philip Dorsett also comes in, Derwin Gray on the offensive line. I love the Malcolm Brown trade. They pick up Jihad Ward from the Raiders, Dakota Allen and Dylan Moses, a UDFA signing from Alabama who was a you know, floated as a possible first round pick before a serious knee injury. We talked about Shaquille Griffin and Tyson Campbell. They also add in Rashawn Jenkins to the defensive backfield. The Tennessee Titans moving on here to our third AFC South team. And this Dolphins team will travel to Tennessee in week 17, the penultimate game of the season for a one o'clock kickoff on January 2nd up in Nashville. The big story here for the Titans is replacing Arthur Smith, who is now the head coach in Atlanta. And he constructed an offense that was just perfectly catered to the strengths of Ryan Tannehill. Again, charting Ryan Tannehill, you allow him to play from the pocket and drive balls to the intermediate portion of the field with that huge arm and use his athleticism off waggle, boot, zone read to help kind of control the box count and give Derrick Henry more options. Those guys work so well together. And then you incorporate Julio Jones. That's the big one, a perfect complement to what they did last season with A.J. Brown running all those crossing routes and deep patterns. Julio Jones can do the exact same thing. So you have two guys that can kind of mirror those concepts on either side of the formation. My favorite offseason addition was Julio Jones this year. But how do they get back to that 12 personnel package that was so deadly with Anthony Ferkser 
without Jonu Smith because he was kind of the guy that drove that package at the tight end position. And who goes to the slot in 11 personnel with three receivers? Josh Reynolds, probably one of their bigger offseason additions there at receiver as well. The offensive line has stepped back a bit since losing Jack Conklin in free agency to Cleveland, and he's been great there. But they have still proven really, really good players in Taylor Lewan, Ben Jones, and Roger Saffold. On the defensive side, I'm excited about this because this team has caught in a lot of flack for their pass rush over the years, but Jeffrey Simmons is one of the more physically imposing players on the interior defensive line, and Harold Landry, when he's healthy, is about as good as there is in terms of the get-off, the explosion, the ability to bend the arc, kind of Cam Wake in that way. I think those guys could both erupt because they've supplemented both those guys in terms of surrounding talent with Danico Autry, a great addition there, and then also Bud Dupree, who gives them a gap hunter and a really, really good pass rusher and a good run defender, a good block defeater. He does it all. He's coming off a torn ACL, so he probably won't be back right away, but he should be back in time for the Week 17 game you would think. There's been so much change on this team. No more Adam Humphreys, no more Malcolm Butler, Kenny Vaccaro, Jonu Smith, Corey Davis. We talked about losing Jack Conklin last year. Their additions, Julio Jones, Josh Reynolds, Danico Autry, Bud Dupree, Jayon Brown, Monty Rice, a rookie linebacker out of Georgia. Love his game. He is a seek and destroy linebacker. They also get Janoris Jenkins and draft a pair of rookies in that secondary as well. Caleb Farley, really rooting for that guy because drafting him after the, the kind of neck or back scare that he had coming out of the draft, I hope it works out for him. And then Elijah Molden from UW has a great chance to be a good slot in this league. Finally, our final team here on the AFC South preview is a week four contest in Miami at Hard Rock Stadium, one o'clock kickoff in that hot, hot Miami heat against the Colts on October 3rd. And this might be the most fascinating team in the entire division because of Carson Wentz. And I talked about him earlier in the podcast, a good time to come back to this. It's, it's weird to watch a player's mechanics of a position change. And you watch the way Wentz was kind of throwing the football last year. The, the base had widened. His feet got wider. His toys were His toes were pointed inward. And it causes the arm slot to drop. It causes balls to sail on him. It was just a really, really weird season for the Eagles at that position. And it was almost kind of training muscle memory that was built in over time that you kind of have to find a way to correct that. So can he do that is the big question. And we'll talk about this here in a minute, but all the injuries that Eagles offense had at receiver offensive line, I wonder how much of that played into Wentz feeling like he has to kind of speed up his play and get things out quicker. And that kind of caused the mechanics to to alter. And then you do it enough to where it becomes a habit that can become a big problem. So that's why he's available for a trade. That's why the Colts get him with Frank Reich, his former coach there in Philly. I can't wait to see what this team looks like this year. It could be very, very fascinating because, you know, I talked about the missed layups he had as a rookie and that's such a thing of the past doesn't really qualify anymore. But his third down grade, I graded every quarterback on third down too. He was far and away in 2017, the best third down quarterback in the NFL because he just had a perpetual Houdini act that was so much fun to watch. And as far as the Colts go at the position, I've really never seen a team that approaches the quarterback position like this one the last couple of years where you have this loaded roster and you just plug in the quarterback and try to make that work that way. It's usually the opposite way around. And I guess that's what happens when you, you know, don't, have that high draft pick to go after a top quarterback in the draft class because this team has drafted Sam Ellinger and Jacob Eason in the last two seasons. But one thing Wentz had in 2017, that MVP level year was a dominant offensive line and a strong backfield. But again, the Eagles just started to really endure an insane amount of injuries and that line caught the worst of it all. 
Quentin Nelson is the best guard in the National Football League. Braden Smith, a great right tackle. Ryan Kelly, an awesome center. And now they get Eric Fisher, who tore his Achilles in January. So he maybe will be back for this game. We'll find out about that in the future. But he might be a later addition for this team that helps them more post-Halloween. Plus, this offense also functions with heavy tight end packages and how Frank Reich can get to four verts from 13 personnel. I've never seen an offensive coordinator do it like that, but he plays off those heavy personnel packages so well with Mo Cox, with Jack Doyle. And then the guy that kind of brings it all together is Jonathan Taylor, who just knows as well as anybody how to maximize good blocking and make teams make plays in the second level. And you're not going to because he's too good to slip those tackles. He just produces. You've also got Naheem Hines and Marlon Mack. What an offensive backfield. I also am a fan of T.Y. Hilton's game. His stats last year were not indicative of his play. I did not think he's much better than his stats showed you. And Michael Pittman really came on, especially in that playoff game. So this offense has some pieces. We'll see if Carson Wentz can get it going. But defensively, this team has always been one of a speed and finesse over size and strength. And that goes back to Tony Dungy with the Gary Brackett days. Darius Leonard at 220 pounds, an elite linebacker, a three-down player. I'll never forget watching him in coverage at the Senior Bowl just erase running backs in a drill that is made to make running backs make the linebackers look silly, and he did the opposite. They also get Bobby Okariki out of Stanford a couple years ago, and he's turned into a great, not just sub-package linebacker, but a chess piece on that defense. Up front, DeForest Buckner is such a load. He's so long and strong. What a trade that was for them. He has the length to occupy blockers and produce to help guys around him. Speaking of that, Grover Stewart reminds me so much of the way Ndamukong Sue plays with the aggressiveness and the tenacity. He's a fantastic player. And then I'm excited to see how Quiddy Pay fits in year one. I didn't think that his usage really matched up to what his strength was there in college. Kamiko Ture, Ben Benogu, Alquadin Muhammad, and Antoine Woods are all intriguing players up front as well. In the defensive secondary, Julian Blackman is one of my favorite players in that 2020 class. His combine session when I talked to him was one of my favorites the entire draft week there. And Kenny Moore is so underrated and a great tackler outside. The secondary is the part where you look and say, They need guys to either develop quickly or return to form like Arakia Sin and Xavier Rhodes. So their offseason was Carson Wentz. Again, Sam Ellinger one year after drafting Jacob Eason. Interesting area to go after quarterbacks in that mid-round of the draft a couple years in a row. Eric Fisher comes in to kind of replace Anthony Costanzo, who retired. Chris Reed, remember him? Julian Davenport, remember him? Joey Hunt, Quiddy Pay, Antoine Woods, Isaac Rochelle, Malik Jefferson, and Xavier Rhodes are their big additions. To me... Three teams could win this division. I, I, I think it's it's it goes as far as Jacksonville. I'd be I think they could have a possible surprise run this year. The MVP of the division, the best player is Derrick Henry. The best quarterback, and this is excluding Deshaun Watson, is Ryan Tannehill. The best defensive player is DeForest Buckner. The best rookie for my money is going to be Trevor Lawrence. I think Frank Reich is the best coach in the division. The most intriguing team is the Jags or the Titans or the Colts. Again, three teams. I don't know. And that goes into our championship prediction. I need to go over the schedule and make a decision for it, but I'm not going to get crazy since, or I, I am I am going to get crazy actually since this isn't my official prediction. Give me the Jaguars. Give me the surprise upstart. I think Trevor Lawrence can be that good. All right, I want to cover some TV shows here on a podcast. We'll come back and do that later in the week. I think You Should Leave is out on Netflix. How good is that show? And Dave on FX continues to pop. Before we get out of here, I want to go ahead and haven't been on the airwaves since this tragedy happened, but just send out our thoughts with the victims of the Surfside 
condo collapse over there right next to Miami Beach. What a sad, sad moment that was and a sad event and and visiting the wall down there in Surfside and kind of seeing the first responders and just the chaos of it all. Really, really apologize for those folks that had to go through that and are still going through that. And uh, we'll try to you know continue to do our efforts here with the Miami Dolphins to, to make things easier and try to help to alleviate some of the pressure of the post-tragedy events there in Surfside. Our thoughts are with you families over there in Surfside. All right, let's go ahead and close up this podcast here again tomorrow. We come back with the running back position, and we'll continue doing this every day up to training camp. And then we're going to have training camp reports for you also every single day, preseason games, and then finally kickoff in September. What a time to be alive. In the meantime, you all please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Go ahead and follow me on Twitter at WingfulNFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank and the Audible Podcast. And of course, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up.